Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 95. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hey guys, so in case you missed it, registration is now open for the Authentic Self Retreat and the Authentic Therapist Retreat, August 29th, 2017 and August 30th, 2017. Two day-long retreats co-facilitated with me and my friend and colleague, Charlotte Heiler Easley, who is a PATH and EGALA certified psychotherapist practicing in Lexington, Kentucky. You probably heard her on Therapy Chat back on episode 56. And if you didn't, you should check out both episodes 55 and 56 to understand why I am crazy for equine work now and so thrilled to bring Charlotte here to Central Maryland so she and I can offer these two day-long retreats Weaving together an introduction to the Daring Way, which you've heard me talk about, the highly experiential method based on the research of Brene Brown on authenticity, courage, vulnerability, how we show up in the world, and Charlotte's beautiful work on with equine-assisted psychotherapy and equine-assisted growth and learning. I hope you will join us for one of these two beautiful experiences here in Central Maryland. You can get all the details and register on my website, lauraregan.lcswc.com and click on retreats. You can also go to therapychatpodcast.com and you'll still see the link across the top that says retreats. Click on that and join us August 29th or August 30th one day for all women, one day for therapists only. And the space is limited to eight people. As of now, we still have a few spots open and we would just love for you to join us. Two people joining at the same time, registering together will receive $50 off each. So if you'd like to be one of those people using that discount, email me at laura at lauraregan.lcswc.com to get the coupon code. Thanks so much. Hope to see you in Central Maryland at the end of August for the Authentic Self Retreat and Authentic Therapist Retreat. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today's topic is something which might seem somewhat controversial, It's definitely a subject for mature audiences. So if you tend to listen with kids in the car, this may not be the right episode to air with them listening. I am all about open discussion of sex and sexuality, but this is pretty mature. So it may be over kids' head. You would want to at least listen first before you listen with kids around. So with that little disclaimer out of the way, I'll share with you that today's guest is here to talk about out of control sexual behavior. I work with people who've experienced 
trauma and very many of my clients have experienced sexual abuse, but even those who haven't experienced sexual abuse, most have had attachment trauma. And I've talked about attachment in multiple past episodes. So if you haven't caught those, you might want to go back and listen. Just last week, I was talking with Deidre Fay about attachment-based yoga and meditation in trauma therapy. She's so amazing, by the way. I just have to say that again. If you missed episode 94, please go listen to it. But right now, in the here and now, in episode 95, I want to talk about when we are using sex to fulfill some kind of other need. I have had many clients who say that their sexual behavior is a problem for themselves, whether they call it sex addiction or they feel intense shame about their sexual behavior. It's something we don't talk about often. And as a clinician, I think it's something that is really important for me to understand And for those of you who are therapists, it's important for you to think about this, as well as people who are listening who may relate to this experience of having, just having that feeling that your sex life isn't as joyful and free as you would like it to be, and that there's a a lot of shame attached to it. So what could be controversial about this episode is that my guest, Dwayne Osterland, is a certified sex addiction therapist. And some people feel that the sex addiction paradigm is shaming and not sex positive. So I ask if you have that perspective, which I've considered myself in the past, whether the CSAT perspective is negative about sexuality, just Give this episode a listen and see what you think. I didn't feel that it was that Dwayne's perspective was shaming in any way. And I'm pretty certain that that's not the way he approaches his work. So he had a lot of good information to share that I found very helpful from an attachment perspective, from a perspective of understanding how shame can drive our behavior, and just an overall understanding of trauma and neuroscience. So listen in and let's see what you think. And I would love to hear your feedback. You can go to therapychatpodcast.com and click on where it says, send me a message. And it's like a green button and it says speak pipe. You can record a message to me and let me know what you think about this episode. Do you think that this is a negative perspective about sexuality? So Without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Dwayne Osterland. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today's episode is one not to miss. I'm having a conversation with someone who has an extensive wealth of knowledge about very interesting topic. Today, my guest is Dwayne Osterland. Dwayne, thanks so much for being here on Therapy Chat today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I initially heard about your work when I heard you on my friend Robert Cox's podcast, Mindful Recovery, and I was fascinated in what you were 
about what you were talking about regarding process addictions and how trauma can underlie compulsive sexual behavior. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about yourself and your work for our audience to get to know kind of who you are and what you do? Sure, definitely. Well, as you said, my name is Dwayne Osterlin. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've been specializing in working in the sex and porn addiction field for over a decade. I came to that field. I I worked a lot in addiction before that, and this was an area that a lot of people didn't really feel comfortable working in. And uh, it had a lot of interest to me um, because I had a lot of clients at the time who, when they got really comfortable with me, they would start to talk about their sexual behavior as feeling out of control or problematic. And that really led me to explore this field and kind of investigate it. And as I did, I really began to see uh, the underlying trauma that these clients face. So I've been helping people, like I said, for over a decade in this area and have really learned a lot of a lot about how sex addiction works and how it impacts people's lives. That's fascinating. And you and I were just talking before we actually started recording a little bit more about the concepts of sexual unwanted sexual behaviors and behaviors that people don't understand. I think some people might be intimidated by the the words sex addiction. But I think, you know, the behavior fits into addiction when you when you look at what's happening with it. So can you talk a little bit about that concept of sex addiction? Sure. Yeah. You know, when we look at like sex addiction, there's a lot of different uh, words that people use for this area, you know, out of control, sexual behavior, sex addiction, hypersexual behavior disorder. But what we're really looking at is we're looking at individuals who have begun to use sex or are using sex as their primary way of coping with emotional distress. And so when they use this area, they continually go back to behavior that is destructive to them. They want to stop it on a certain level. They know it's destructive, but yet they continue it anyway, much like when you would look at somebody who has a drug addiction, you know, they continue to use this substance. They continue to go back to this. Yet, even though they know it's destructive, even though they know that this is not a good decision, they can't seem to stop. And so it's kind of, you know, where we look at a drug addiction, you know, it's like a dysfunctional relationship with a with a substance. This is a dysfunctional relationship with a behavior. And, um, you know, they, they report like really feeling out of control. They've most likely made efforts to stop. They are doing it in spite of consequences right? They know that they're going to have these consequences if they engage in them in this behavior. They're, they may lose their job. They, they may lose their relationship, yet they continue to do it. And they also report that they use this as their primary way of coping with life's uh, difficult emotions or life stress or loneliness or depression or anxiety or, you know, any of those, any of those uncomfortable mood states, they use sex as a way to, to rid themselves of that or regulate it. Yeah, now I think that is really, really interesting. I've talked to people as people who listen to Therapy Chat know, I work with people who have complex trauma from childhood experiences, childhood abuse or attachment issues and, well, relational traumas, we would say. I've heard people say, you know, I feel numb most of the time. The only Mm -hmm. time I really feel alive or the only time I feel like I'm in my body is during sex. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for a lot of people who are using compulsive sexual behavior, 
that can be one one way in which they they use it if they're if they've had extensive trauma in their past you know maybe they are their emotional state is so numbed out they've learned to numb their emotions mm-hmm. that they'll use high risk sex or more intense sexual behaviors to kind of increase in a, an emotional state whereas others who are have have a constant sense of unease or anxiety will use more numbing behaviors. So they may be more looking at like internet pornography and numbing to that fantasy where the person who doesn't feel anything uses high risk sex to feel something, you know, to feel alive. So it's, it really depends on who comes in. But the one, the one thing we see in, in what we kind of call the classic person who has a sex addiction is that early trauma you know, attachment trauma. We, we see either abuse or neglect or some kind of emotional abuse, but there's something in their, in their background that they had um, a difficult attachment experience. I mean, it's definitely underlines, underlies their, their sexual activity. Okay. So when you said someone who fits the classic definition, can you talk a little bit more about that? Cause I know we were kind of talking about how there were like subtypes. Right. Well, you know, when, when, Let's see. When we look at like the the classic sex addict, we're looking at someone who is using sex to regulate. They usually have a lot of trauma in their background. Um, So you can link it to that. And you can see that the sex addiction has probably started pretty early in their life as a coping mechanism. The other side of what we're seeing today, too, is with uh, is kind of a new uh, thing with the advent of the internet and internet pornography, especially high-speed internet porn, we're also seeing a subset of people come in who come in with problematic porn use that may not show the classic signs of trauma. And we're seeing so there's kind of two different people that kind of come in for help. And and so with the internet porn, it's you know usually it's like early exposure, which could be considered a trauma in a way, but they may not have that attachment trauma mm-hmm. as part of it. And, you know, both of them have to be treated a little bit differently, I think. A lot of with the classic sex addict, there's a there's a lot of trauma work that has to happen and attachment work that needs to take place in order for them to really get that long term healing, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. To me, it definitely makes sense. And that's kind of that's what feels right to me, but I don't have that training. So I wasn't sure about that in terms of, it seems like it's related. If it's related to trauma and attachment, you have to address the trauma and attachment. Well, yeah, you have to, what's, what's hard with working with, with um, people who struggle with sex addiction is that um, you have to do both and you have to address the behavior because usually there's consequences that are happening right then and there. They're, they're going to lose their job. They're traumatizing their partner there's actual consequences to the behavior or they're, you know, they're engaging in high risk behavior. You know, if they're having uh, sex with prostitutes or, or going to massage parlors, you know, they're putting a lot of, there's a, there's legal risk there. There's STD risk. So you have to help them stop that behavior. And then at the same time, help them begin to have an attachment with you as a therapist and an, an attachment. If they're in a treatment facility with the treatment team, that works on that trauma at the same time. So you're balancing both of those, those fields. And I really feel like you, 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 you have to do both. Therapists, 
We've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Can you explain for those who are listening how this problem develops for someone? Sure, definitely. I, you know, what, what we see kind of classically is that, first off, they are coming from environments that are either uh, disengaged. So the family structure is disengaged. They don't have a lot of attachments. So there's not a, a lot of emotional sharing. And usually from a very rigid environment, there's not a lot of flexibility in the environment. And as they grow up in that environment, they don't learn how to emotionally regulate. So there's a lot of internal distress. And as they get older and as they discover their sexuality, they and that they discover that sex is pleasurable, they begin to see that, hey, this is a way for me to cope with this emotional pain. So for a lot of clients, they'll talk about like mom and dad are arguing and fighting and being violent and they go to the bedroom and they learn that if they masturbate they're not going to have all the distress that comes from that situation so what they start to learn is that this becomes their primary way of coping with life's pain and they start to turn to this over and over again and that starts to create this kind of compulsive template so as they go into adulthood they learn that you know what i i feel bad I can use sex as this coping mechanism, you know, so and the way that kind of works out, whether it's masturbation or anonymous sex can depend a lot on how the the traumatic experience occurred, like what occurred and what meaning they put to it. And so you get kind of this this trauma, this underlying trauma and this arousal template that are that are connected. But a lot of times they can't see that right away. Right. They just see the arousal and they say, oh, well, no, I don't see how that's connected to any of my family history. But as you, you know, work with them and as they look at their trauma and they start to compare it to how they are aroused or their sexual fantasies, they'll begin to see um, the overlap. And really, you know, our sexual fantasies are really a window into our soul. So any of us can look at our fantasies and look at our own history, if that makes sense. So it plays out that way. Whoa, that's interesting, (laughs) to say the least. I mean, people 
people will say, oh, you know, that's just a sexual fantasy. That's not something that, you know, is really related to me and how I am and how I feel about things. And, you know, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of people feel that. But usually there is a connection to who we are. I mean, our sexuality is so tied to our sense of self that to me, it 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 will manifest that way. Now, it doesn't mean that any of those sexual choices or behaviors are bad or wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people can have trauma and and can incorporate that into their sexuality in a positive way that is life enhancing, actually. So. It's more like with when we're looking at sex addiction, it's really looking at the compulsive component, not the behavior itself. I mean, I think that's very important to also acknowledge, you know, because with sex addiction, a lot of people can can believe that, you know, it's very sex negative and that any sex out of the norm is wrong. And that's not what we're saying. But so if that does that make kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I'm hearing and I'm glad you brought this up is that. The problem is that the person wants to stop and they can't. It's not a problem of what they're actually doing. It's how they feel about it, that they feel ashamed of it and they want to stop, but they feel like they can't. Is that right? Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I think that's definitely it. And that kind of nails it. I mean, it's it's so we're not looking at uh, it's not about a particular sexual behavior. It's a it's really about that compulsive component of like, I'm I'm not in control of my choices anymore, just like the drug addict who's who feels that same way. I'm not in control of the choices I'm making around this issue. And, you know, for even the, you know, the, the substance abuser, the, the, the drug addict or alcoholic at some level, they can stop that behavior, but where they really find relief is when they dig in and do that trauma work. And that really Mm -hmm. starts to alleviate a lot of the cravings to go to this behavior or substance as a way to cope. Yeah, it's the same thing. The The drug is causing some kind of soothing and the soothing is needed because they are dysregulated from whatever trauma they've experienced. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, you know, when people come in, they sometimes that trauma is so early that they don't even know that they've experienced it. It's um, it's visceral. It's early trauma. So the emotional memory is there, but the cognitive memory is not. So they feel this pain, but they don't know where it's coming from, if that makes sense. And so you're working with that. You're working with attachment. And uh, it takes a lot of, of patience and and kindness to to help these people feel safe and secure to work through this issue. Wow. I am with you on that 100%. And that's one of the hardest things about working with people to address attachment trauma is that since it happened, you know, most significantly probably in the first six years of life, although it could have continued throughout your life, you don't have words for it and you don't have memories to say, this is, you know, this is what happened when I was crying, no one came, you know? Yeah. And, and so as they slowly begin to kind of realize that and, and, you know, for a lot of times we do a lot of groups at our, our facility as well. And it's amazing to see these people who really, when they come in, most of them don't really have significant friendships with anybody. And as they do this work and these groups develop, they develop these bonds with other people that they've never had before in their life. It's pretty amazing to watch that as they work through that and they work through this issue together. And um, it's pretty amazing to watch. And And then they get to form like, 
some really healthy attachments where people know all of them, know everything that they're struggling with, even the things they feel shame about, and they're still accepted in this group and they're, and everybody's willing to rally behind them and help them. Um, it's pretty amazing to watch that. And that's one of my favorite parts of doing this work is watching these people have these just incredibly deep relationships with other people that are healthy and secure and to watch that develop is pretty amazing. That's beautiful. It's like watching attachment develop. It's like something that didn't get to develop and it develops through that connection in the groups. Yeah, definitely. And and with their therapist and the treatment team and and everybody who's involved, they they begin to be, they begin to see that, you know, they 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 can get through this problem, but they can also that they're good people too, you know, that that even though they struggle with this and they've done some things that they, they feel bad about and probably aren't necessarily always right and good, that they can still be loved and that people can still care about them. And usually that's like really when you strip it all away, that's what the trauma leaves, right? It leaves this deep feeling of unworthiness, mm-hmm. you know, and if they can move through that, that's where you really get to see that change, but that takes a lot of time. You know, you're working with these clients two, three years to get there. It's not something that happens in six months. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I'm so glad you said that because that's, you know, that's hard for people to wrap their minds around that there's no quick fix for this. It's something that takes time because it's, you know, it's so much based in trust and you, when you have attachment when you have a disrupted attachment, you don't even know how much you don't trust other people until you start to feel a little bit what it's like to trust people more. And then you're like, wow, I don't like, <laughs> I don't trust anybody. Like, you know, yeah. you just like, yep. oh, that's yep. how you're able to reflect and say, you mean it could be like this? Oh. Yeah. They start to get kind of a, a taste for what they didn't know they were missing. And, and yeah, and yeah, definitely. And it does take time. And, you know, with, with addiction, you've got the, the, the problem of, of like containing the behaviors quickly mm-hmm. so that they can get out of the destruction of their choices. And almost you almost have to kind of do a behavior modification right off the top to get containment around it. Mm-hmm. And that enables them, once they can kind of get that structure and containment around it, then they have the, the freedom to start working on the, these deeper underlying issues. It's, I mean, you're doing both, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a balancing act, but um, you know, you got to contain that too. And that's really can be hard. Yeah. It kind of sounds like any self-destructive behavior, like whether it's an eating disorder or um, cutting or anything like that, you're, when you're doing the deep work, it may be triggering the behavior more. So You've got to have a way to contain the behavior to be able to have it be safe to do the, the deep exactly. Work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's yeah, and and that's um, but you know, it's it all comes back to that trust, trusting, you know, like building that trust that we're here for them. And a lot of our clients, when they when they get to us, they're already in crisis. You know, mm. uh, they're going to lose their marriage, they've lost their job, they've been arrested, whatever it is, they're in some kind of crisis. So. We definitely have that leverage to kind of get them to start making those changes because because their situation is is pretty dire at that moment. So they're willing to do a lot more. 
And then that gives us the time to build a little bit of trust. So when that crisis fades a little bit, they don't go, okay, I'm good. I'm out of here. Yeah. You know, I don't need to do this anymore. And then go, and then, you know, three months down the road or six months down the road, they're back in, back into that same destructive pattern. So you got to kind of contain that behavior, use that crisis, get them in, get them to, to them to feel that, Hey, I'm on your side and, and let's keep going. Don't, don't walk away yet. You know, and that's also a balancing, balancing act too, because none of, I, I think, you know, when we have trauma and we have this early attachment trauma, none of us want to feel this pain. It's awful. You know, it doesn't feel good. And so exactly. none of us want to go there. A very, very few of us go there willingly until we've gone there enough that we realize going there is actually a good thing. And that, that takes time to have that experience. Yeah. And I, I think that avoidance aspect of trauma, that is one of the features of it. It's not even like you're saying, nah, I don't want to really feel this. I don't want to go there. It's just like your mind's like, nope, it just kind of blocks it. And then you're like telling yourself, well, I don't need this. I'm feeling better, you know, and I think everything's fine. You know what I mean? So it's, yep. it's really side of, sort of not that conscious of a thing to block the the pain and avoid it because your brain's doing it automatically as a result of the trauma. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're working with that and that can be really, really hard to do. And, and, you know, that's like helping them feel trust and safe and, you know, this is a good thing. And if they get a little taste of it, then they're like, okay, maybe I'll stay here a little bit longer. Yeah. And then you can work a little bit farther and then you can work a little bit farther and, and, uh, but it is really, you know, what I, what I have to say too, is it is a, it is a hard road, but the other side is truly amazing too. And to see some of these individuals kind of go through that whole process and come out the other side and really have, even if they've been in a relationship and they've betrayed their, their marriage and, and everything like that, they, they come back even uh, more enriched and almost actually thankful for the experience because it freed them from their trauma. And, um, it's amazing to see that happen and, and, and to really know that possibility is there for people. And I, you know, that part is just, um, it's so great to see. Yeah. I think that's one of the things where the, the therapist has to hold that deep belief that this will help you come not only to the end of the tunnel and walk out, but it, you, when you come out to the other side, what you're going to see is going to be so different and unbelievably better that than you could have thought you would ever be able to feel. And it's like, people are like, are you sure? It's like, are you, yes, are really. You, just, just keep, just trust me on this. Just keep going. You can do this. And don't, don't, don't turn around. Just keep going. I know it feels, yeah, you got to hold that trust for them. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, you got to believe it. And and I think they sense that if, if you can, if you believe that they sense, they, they have a sense of it. Yeah. So Dwayne, if someone has this kind of compulsive sexual behavior, let's say it's um, someone who had early exposure to porn and it seems to be affecting them. Are there ways to treat someone before they reach adulthood? I haven't well, seen anything. Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of a newer area because the Internet is really within this field is kind of young. Mm-hmm. We're just starting to see the first generation that is has grown up with online porn 
And so we're learning a lot about it. You know what? In in the last five to five to six seven years, I've seen a, an increase in a lot more younger people coming in and getting help. Usually, the people that would come in and get help were in their forties, fifties, and sixties. That's usually when they would come in. Some younger people, but that's usually it. But what we're seeing now is we're seeing this younger of twenty three year olds. 24-year-olds, 25-year-olds coming in who have grown up on internet pornography and they're they're they have erectile dysfunction because they're you know they're looking at porn so much that when they're with their partner their partner just isn't arousing anymore and and some of the things we're thinking about is like with the internet you have endless novelty which the brain is wired for mm-hmm. so that's part of it you know, it's it's high speed, it's intense. And, you know, we're wondering, you know, maybe the brain wasn't wired for this. And so exposure to this causes brain changes that we're just starting to see for some people, you know, and I, I think I, I wonder if it'll be a lot like addiction. You know, some people are going to look at porn and they're going to, you know, maybe dabble it and they go, oh, I don't, you know, this is this isn't good for me. And they stop. But there's going to be a group of people that look at it and can't. And that's what we're seeing. And so when these 23 year olds come in where you would think at that age, having an erectile dysfunction, you know, would not be heard of. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, and they're not having any arousal when they're with their partner. And so they really have to you, they have to begin to see that and then really get themselves away from the pornography. They've got to stop looking at it and give their brain a chance to, to heal or to change what's interesting. And I can't remember where I, I read this data. They were saying that for, you know, someone in my generation exposed to online internet porn. Now my brain will recover faster than someone who is 23, who's been looking at internet porn, you know, since they were 12, mm-hmm. right. Cause they had that early exposure in that brain development during stage. development. Yeah. Right. And, and there's some, you know, there's some hard wires being laid down at that point. So, you know, we're really investigating it. I mean, I think the thing is, is really, you know, if you have kids protecting your kids from online porn as much as you can, you know, talking about it, being open about it so that they can come to you if, if they do discover it. And, you know, you know, prevention, I think, is part of it. I think that definitely is important for kids because we just don't know the impact. I don't know if that if that all kind of makes sense. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, it's so hard because for one thing, the people who are tasked with preventing the kids from accessing internet porn are less tech savvy. You know, the people of our generation, forties, fifties and older are, are less tech savvy. And so they're like, Oh, I think I, you know, blocked everything. And then when you know it, there's another way that the kid can figure out how to do it in the, I mean, it's normal for kids to be curious about sex, so they're not they're not wrong. But no, they're not wrong. But you have to protect them because they don't understand what they're exposing themselves to when they do view porn. Right. This isn't the the porn of my generation, which was you know Playboy, you know a magazine. I mean, this is endless high speed internet porn, and it's it's very different than what even, you know, a couple generations ago. So we really, we, did, we don't know exactly what we're seeing. I mean, it's still, we're still investigating that. But, you know, working with, with you know, even though they're 23, I kind of call them kids. 
working with them coming in, you know, it's, it's really just getting to them to stop the behavior, get away from it and see the value of, of, of not engaging in it as they work to kind of reprogram their brain, you know, and there's a whole, there's a whole online movement around this too, in the younger generations online, the no fat move movement, you know, so there's this whole, this no whole generation fat movement, no fat, no fapping. It's, it's a British oh. term. For masturbation. For right. Okay. So, you know, they, there's, there's a lot of that just on the internet itself of, of younger people discussing this issue and mm. talking about it and helping each other, you know, uh, they call it rebooting, mm. you know, rebooting their brain and getting away from the pornography because they're, they're feeling, you know, it's, it's destructive for them. So, you know, we're seeing that, that happen too. So. Well, you know, something you said about how some people may be more, drawn to compulsively view porn on the internet and others maybe less, not including the generational difference you talked about because we didn't grow up with that. Right. I'm wondering if attachment issues that someone has may, may lend them to being more drawn to it, you know, because it is soothing and, you know, if that may be one of the differences that separates the groups yeah, my guess is that abso- absolutely that would be something that would lend itself to that, just as it is with drug addiction and alcoholism. You know, a lot of times when younger people have that trauma and they get exposed to that drug, it's like, wow, this is this works for me. This is what I need. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I think, you know, the, the young generation is, is, is the same thing. But I, I wonder, my, one of the questions I wonder are, are, is it impacting people who may have, you know, good enough attachments? Mm-hmm. What is Internet porn doing to them? And I think that we're going to we're going to have to look at that and explore that and see see what comes of that. I think, you know, we're still doing a lot of research around that and, and discovering what's going on. Yeah, I'm I'm not. You know, I'm not an anti-porn person whatsoever, but I see how with the porn that is on the Internet now, which is different from what was 10 years ago, it's like a barrage. You know, it's just like more like coming fast and furious, you know. Yeah. And and I I I come from the same thing. I'm not anti-porn or, you know, porn is horrible. For some people, porn can be very enhancing for their relationship. And there's there's areas definitely that porn Porn is good too, but um, yeah, looking at how is it affecting our, our our generation and and especially it's different. So I think we have to look at that as as therapists, as a treat, treatment community. I think it's it's our responsibility to kind of explore that and be open to how does this impact everybody and how does this impact our our kids. Yeah, and another aspect that I wonder about since I do specialize with people who experience sexual trauma is how kind of mainstream violent sex appears to be. If you look at internet porn as if that, like, this is how you have sex pulling, grabbing someone's hair or putting your hands around their throat during sex. You know, those things are fine if both parties are, you know, consenting, but it's not necessarily just like what, everybody does and <laughs> when they have sex. Right. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, there has been some look at like that issue of like that porn. I can't remember where I got this information either, but 
that that porn, I remember somebody was talking about this, that porn was also um, tending to be more violent in that way. And this is what they were being exposed to early on is this kind of slant towards this kind of violent edge of porn. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm not talking about just the concept of porn being violent or misogynistic just in itself, but the specific acts during sex that's depicted in porn that are more violent than what typical sex just in general, you know, looks like. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also for a lot of young people, this is where they're learning about sex. And so right. they're they're having these this is this is the expectation of what sex is supposed to be like. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. And and so, you know, we have to look at that, I think, as as a society, uh, address that issue and investigate that further. And I, I definitely think that that can be an issue. Yeah. So you did talk a little bit already about how Parents can kind of be proactive to help their kids not become desensitized to porn. But what about for people who may be listening and thinking, hmm, I think I may have these compulsive sexual behaviors and maybe I would want to seek treatment. Like, what are the the options for treatment that people can have? Well, yeah, I definitely think, you know, if, if someone's uh, struggling with this is to, you know, reach out to a professional therapist that is trained in this area. Um, one of my training is certified. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. And, and if you can find a CSAT somewhere, that's definitely uh, a positive thing. This is an area that they're trained in, but reach out for help no matter what. Go find a therapist, talk to somebody about it, and don't stop reaching out to help until you find the right help that fits for you. I, I think that's uh, that's very important. I can't encourage that um, that enough. You know, it's just reach out. And I think this is the hardest part for most people who are struggling with this is they feel so much immense shame around mm-hmm. it that they avoid getting that help and they put it off as long as they can until the crisis is just so big they can't ignore it. And if they can come in a little bit earlier or even if they think they might have a problem and get some professional help, then they may be able to avoid a lot of the damage that can come from dealing with this issue. Yeah. So addressing it earlier may prevent a lot of pain for them. Yeah, definitely. You know, the earlier they can get help and, and to reach out for it before the crisis is so big. And if, if you think you're struggling, you know, I, that's what I would encourage you to do. It's just reach out for help and get somebody else's assessment on this. Okay. And so do people, is, is it a, an outpatient treatment? Is it a intensive outpatient or inpatient? How do people receive that help? I think it's it, it has that whole range and it depends on the person. There are a lot of inpatient programs that treat sex addiction and a lot of outpatient programs. And it depends on the level of severity. You know, some people can do well with coming in and doing individual and maybe a support group you know, like a process group, and they can, that's going to help them and that's going to be enough for them. But there are other clients who are at a risk to themselves where inpatient is really going to get them the jump start they need. They need that very structured containment. So it really depends. And that's where you want to get a professional assessment from somebody who works in this field. So looking, someone, looking for someone who's an expert in sex addiction treatment, I think is what you want to do. And 
So it can depend. It can depend. And, and you need to get that professional opinion. Great. This is so helpful. I think, you know, one of the wonderful things about podcasts is people can listen privately to information that they wouldn't want to ask anyone. And yeah. sex can be so taboo in our culture that, you know, people are often very ashamed, as you mentioned, to to mm-hmm. uh, ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, therapists, you know, certified sex addiction therapists are trained in this area. They've heard a lot of this. You know, I have a lot of clients coming in saying, oh, you probably haven't heard this one before. or <laughs> You haven't heard this. And I'm like, well, I've heard quite a few things, you know, working this long in this field. Um, and I say, you know what? Put it out there. Let's work on it. Just be honest with me and we'll find a way to, to help you, you know, whatever that is. And and um, and then we go from there. Well, I'm sure you are helping a lot of people. I mean, your approach sounds really nice and I like how it's trauma informed and I'm always listening to hear are this is this person going to mention trauma you know I'm like my Mm -hmm. feelers are out to see if I'm going to think this is (laughs) sufficient or not when I'm hearing about these kinds of treatments that are different from what I do yeah yeah and definitely I mean trauma if we look at it trauma is kind of the root uh, at the core of all of this and that trauma has to be addressed in some way and However, you're going to do it, helping them, even if you're helping them get EMDR or somatic work or whatever it is, they're, they're getting that work. Yeah. Awesome. So, Dwayne, tell our audience where they can find you and what kind of things you have going on that they might be interested in learning more about. Yeah, they can find me on my uh, website. It's called theaddictedmind.com. That's also my podcast as well. And I talk a lot about a lot of things about addiction and they can find me there and there's contact information there and and, uh, all sorts of stuff. So it's it's easy. Theaddictedmind.com. Wonderful. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Dwayne, thank you so much for coming on Therapy Chat today. This was really fascinating to me and I'm so grateful that you took the time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Dwayne Osterland. So what did you think? I am 100% certain that I work from a sex positive perspective. I feel that whatever you're doing, as long as you feel good about it, it's a-okay. But when your sexuality makes you feel filled with shame, where do you turn? And I think that's where Dwayne's work really comes in. People who are compulsively using porn and it interferes with their ability to to enjoy sex with their partner because of the compulsive nature of it, that they want to stop, but they can't. If they don't want to stop and they think it's fine, then it's fine with me. But if they do want to stop and they feel like they can't, that's where this paradigm of sexually compulsive behavior, sex addiction, whatever you want to call it, is needed for people to figure out how they can address that and get away from the shame-driven behavior. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was very thought-provoking discussion for me. And I'm glad that Dwayne agreed to come on Therapy Chat because I know that there are some people who just don't know who to ask and how to deal with the way they feel or even what to call it. And I think that this discussion may help those people be able to 
feel seen and heard and understood and know what to name the way they feel so they can ask for help. As always, I appreciate you listening to Therapy Chat. I'm so excited because we are close to hitting a big milestone this month of the number of downloads, which represents how many times people listen to Therapy Chat. And it's really exciting. Therapy Chat's coming up on its two-year anniversary in mid-August. Right now we're in mid-July. And we have over 400,000 downloads, which is really exciting. So I thank you for being a part of it. As I mentioned earlier, if you would like to leave a comment on SpeakPipe, you can go to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and let me know what you thought about this conversation. Was it useful? Was it shaming? Was it way off target? And if so, why? I'd love to know what you think. We can disagree and it's okay. I'm so appreciative to all of you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.